for another episode of Say Word. Today, we are joined by special guest, Sadi Moktudir, along with our crew, Hirsch, Bader, and Hassan. Welcome, brothers. Thanks for joining us, Sadi. Of course, yeah. Thank you for inviting me on. Islamically, I have to put respect on your last name. It's Moktadir, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're just trying to show our flavors on the episode, you know, come from various backgrounds. So again, a warm welcome to Sadi. We're happy to have you here. And for those who are listening in this episode today, quick intro. Sadi is a writer from Toronto who writes about identity, violence, race, and other urban issues. His work can be found in Joyland Magazine, Rice Paper Magazine, The Humber Literary Review, and other places. His debut novel, The Land of No Regrets, is forthcoming with HarperCollins Canada and Hanover Square Press in spring 2023. So keep a watch out for some bestsellers coming out next spring. When he's not writing, he can be found eating his way across the city, testing the limits of his uh, human stomach. So welcome, Sadi. Yeah. Great to have you here. We wanted to kick off with fun topics. And our first one comes in from London, UK. 29-year-old Mohammed Malik from Hounslow in West London decided to advertise himself on billboards in a quest to find a wife. Malik decided to take this unconventional approach after years of struggling to find a life partner through other methods including dating apps. The kernel of an idea was presented to me by a friend who I know in marketing, right? And I, it was me kind of complaining about, man, you know, I'm doing so many things. I'm so busy with work, with like a side hustle, with hobbies. And on top of that, you know, events are closing because of uh, uh, the pandemic, right? So how can you get out there? So that conversation led to something quite extreme, which is literally getting yourself out there, old school billboards. We all know how hard it is dating in today's world and the added pressures that come from family. Uh, Well, earlier in the new year, when it clocked in, many Londoners were greeted with billboards of a young man lying down on a purple screen pointing at a line, save me from my arranged marriage. We can give Malik a, a few points for marketing and thinking outside the box and not having to depend on like the regular dating apps. Um, But it does pose a really great question. His story isn't very unique, especially with regards to obligations put on us by our family and community. I'd be interested to know, brothers, what have you done or would you do to get yourself out of a family obligation? Uh, Is lying okay? Are we above lying? (laughs) (laughs) You say whatever you want. We are definitely not above lying. Yeah, exactly. I feel like, yeah, if you, you know, you grew up around certain kind of family you know you you get used to making up some good stories pretty quickly right especially once you become a teenager right mm-hmm. like you know if you ask my parents i was at the library a lot growing up but if you ask my friends i was it wasn't the library yeah. it was not the library at all so. the library all right. <laughs> classic oh, classic sadie you have muslim parents too i see yeah 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 exactly yeah so mm. yeah a lot of time at that library what about you guys my um, classic is you got to find a really good friend, right? And you have to co-opt them into whatever, whatever tale you're spinning, right? It's not always easy to find reliable friends like that or friends where, you know, your parents don't know their parents too. So it's, a, it's an art form. So that's, that's usually what I do. I, I try to rally the community around me and <laughs> that's how I do it. It's hard to find that friend though because they, they have to have the same, they have to have the same level of, 
of like halal and haram is you, right? Because otherwise, <laughs> right? Because otherwise, <laughs> right? <laughs> otherwise they're going to be pulling you into some stuff that you don't want to be in, or mm-hmm. you know that you know it's not going to be as fun or whatever. So you know it's it's tough finding that friend. Yeah, if it skews too far one way or the other, exactly, it can uh, bring the house of cards down. Yeah, but for that brother in the UK, what I find interesting, like the challenges I think for him is. Um, and, and a lot of probably young professionals can can relate to this is, uh, as you mentioned, Sadi, a lot of the time you spent, quote unquote, in the library, but that, w- that was a growth period for you when you were in college, right? And yeah. a lot of people meet their significant others. In co- a lot of people do try to meet them in college or it happens naturally. But I think when you're in the professional setting, now time is pretty compressed. So yes. it, it gets difficult and, and people ask around, ask for friends. Um, I think this, this brother, um, the alternative, it's not that he was dissing um, arranged marriage. He was trying to figure it out for himself before he had to go down the arranged marriage route. I read, though, that he had more than 100 responses. So it's probably more effective than if he was on the dating apps. But yeah. that balance between uh, that career that you're, you're driving forward and the time it takes to cultivate a relationship with someone gets a little bit difficult, especially as you get older, because you're you're more set in your ways, right? That's just my yeah. thinking. Yeah. I've been married for a few years, so I don't know if I'm like a hundred percent can relate to his like that professional struggle. Cause like yeah, and I've been with my wife since I was like 22. So but what I can say is sometimes I do look at young professionals today and like people like Malik and people on this billboard and I do feel like it's not that big of a deal, but uh, you know, obviously I don't get their struggle because you know, I've I've been with my wife and like, you know, I haven't had to struggle with that. Right. So, but I do feel like sometimes on both sides, men and women sometimes like make a bigger deal out of it. It's really hard for me to articulate this, but I just feel like the era we're living in and the times we're living in have created like this illusion of infinity choice and this uh, environment of like, wanting like something that doesn't exist or like wanting some like perfect ideal or something like that and so people are people you know stay single for longer than they have to be single right and like 50 years ago 60 years ago there wasn't much to do so people would just get married and have kids right this is this is my insane theory i know none of this adds up today we have so many things competing for our time and you know even in our professional lives right so many things that you know give us a rewarding a fulfilling life that you know finding a partner is like you know let's put it on a billboard that's, that's interesting you say that my dad got married very young my mother got married very very young and i had this conversation with them and it was like like you said sadie 50 60 years ago the world is a very different place like the world would break out into a global conflict at any point and at any given time right i come from sudan so like people the, the mortality rate is really high there, uh, was high in the past too. So it was like, if you made it to adulthood, it's like, all right, like got to share it with someone, got to get moving, you know, get married, start having kids. Cause you know, nothing was basically promised the next day. Right. So, and like you say, like we do live in a, a different time. It's almost as if the previous trajectory that everyone followed, it's like, okay, man, get married, have, you know one and a half kids and a dog and all that doesn't always doesn't always fit everyone's lives uh and like like yourself i've also been with my wife for a very long time and i get that comment a lot like 
oh yeah, I, I, I need to get on that. I need to, and I think about it and it's like, well, that's kind of, if you look at it just like, okay, there's this thing, this pin I put in a board that I need to, to address, then it's pretty arbitrary, right? Um, doesn't make it organic. I never planned to get married when I did, but I did. So yeah, all that to say, this guy in, in London went through a lot of planning. He had even had a Google form. You could submit applications to him. Um, he also, he, he, he was strategic about it too. He didn't just put billboards in London. He also put billboards in Birmingham, which is a major South Asian hub too, right? Uh, so like I, he uh, was fairly strategic about it. I, I can't lie. There's a quote in here about how he consulted the the network of aunties as well. I thought that was funny. Um, <laughs> if the aunties, honestly, I don't know. It made me suspicious. If the aunties can't find him someone, uh, I don't know. There might be some red flags there, you know? Yeah. I don't know what he's hiding. He's hiding yeah. something. I think the case is if the aunties find you someone you don't want. A funny story I can share was... Uh, getting out of family obligations was when my sisters were closer to their 30s, my aunties in their attempts to try and, you know, hook my sisters up with a potential suitor, uh, because they felt like, oh, you're getting past your marriage age, they would pass me the phone every time a suitor would call them from back home in Uganda, and I would have to fake a voice like a Western voice. So it would get deep, like, my name is Trevor Young, you know? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and every time they would call, they will call to my aunties, well, like, it seems that she's dating or they're dating a, a white guy or a foreigner and stuff, right? So they would complain and my mom would say, like, who, who did you have in the house at 6 a.m. in the morning? Uh, so... <laughs> Another thing to mention is that um, we think about this ease in relation to online dating. However, people online say and act very differently than they do yeah. offline. I don't know if you found that, Khalaf, or, or like you've heard stories or you can comment on that. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm a single guy. I've obviously uh, tried a couple of different things. I've, I've tried dating apps and yeah, I would agree it's a it's a wasteland. You know, it, sometimes it could be like a tennis match where you're just going back and forth and there's no love. I don't know if you guys that fun. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, really, it, it is a tennis match. That's a good one. Where you go back and forth um, the entire time. And it's like, especially I find like in the pandemic, you never meet. So you're just talking to these people. It's just like, yo, like, I don't want to do this. It's kind of taxing, right? But back to the guy with the uh, billboard, I think it's an efficient thing. I think it's actually really dope that he did that. The objective as a single person is to maximize your connections and also not to miss any potential connections that might be beneficial for you especially if he's doing well for himself, he already kind of knows what he wants. I think it'll give him more solid footing because he'll either commit to what he likes or he'll realize that what he likes is unreasonable, right? Because I'm trying to say is if the consequence of uh, putting up a billboard and dating that many or getting that much talk to that many people is, you know what, I like this type of person and then you meet that type of person and you're like, wait, I, I'm not so sure anymore. Do you know what I mean? Mm. What, what you can do is you're, perspective about that can change so i think it's i think it's a great strategy i think it's better than any dating app and i think honestly i wouldn't be shocked if that person met a partner because mm -hmm. it's like you can go through the traditional channels but it's like you know, the traditional channels are are mm -hmm. either clogged messy yeah. or dated right like i think especially for a man i think it's also easier too than for a woman right i think if a woman puts her out there puts herself out there it's like oh like you know what i mean there's all these like stereotypes and all these things about women dating that i feel like kind of um, are attached to that where it's like if it's a man it's like yo that's efficient like that's efficient that's the best way to meet as many people as possible and you know as a man sometimes you're expected to uh take the first step so i i don't think it's a bad idea at all 
I think it's actually pretty, pretty brilliant and creative. Some amazing words and wise words there, perspectives. So brother, let's move on to our main segment of today's episode, where we get to hear from our guest, Sadi. So Sadi, words have power. They can embolden us. They can inspire us to aspire for greatness, and they can weave together communities or set them apart. What was your first experience where you learned language and words had power? Um, I've thought about this question a lot. Uh, and I'd say like my, my first experience, it wouldn't be through books or wouldn't be through writing. I think it would be honestly uh, being in the masjid, like being in the mosque and uh, listening to a sermon. I think for me, that's, that's the first place where I really had like a real uh, experience and a relationship with the power of words and like what they could do, right. And mm-hmm. how they could move you and things like that. And like listening to, you know, whatever it was, right. Like a, a sermon or, or a talk being, being given on any night of the week uh, after any prayer. I think for me, like that's, that was for me the, the first time that I felt moved by words, but I would, I wouldn't know that until, to be honest, until like, uh, you know, I thought about this question mm-hmm. for me, I would have thought that it was, it was, it was books and things like that. But for me, books was like an, was like an escape into like another world. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was like being in that environment with my father, with my brothers was, was like the first time I saw like mm-hmm. how, how powerful, you know, words could be and how they could be used as mm-hmm. well to, to, you know, help your case or harm your case, um, in whatever you're trying to say or convey. So, um, I'd say I learned pretty quickly in, in childhood, like, you know, words for me, especially like the English language was like the most accessible way for me to like communicate with the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, language was something that was never kept from me the way maybe other things were because they were uh, too expensive, right? Like we can talk about art, music, sports, mm-hmm. you know, all of these other things, right? But for me, like words, reading, writing, you know, listening to sermons, things like that. These were like extremely accessible Mm -hmm. and, you know, a great way for me to find a way to like convey like how I was feeling, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what did I want to read that day? Right. Things like that. So we met like a few, several years ago as well. And we went to like a writer's festival uh, downtown here in Toronto. And since then you will be publishing your first book will be published next spring Mm -hmm. in 2023. Mm -hmm. And you've also been writing. You've also been like putting out your, your work. So like, if you can share with the audience as well as in like, what are some of the major themes that your writing has dealt with and what, you know, what does your book try to explore? How has, as you mentioned, like going to mosque was really impactful for you. Like how has the community you've grown up in really shaped the works that are, have come and will to come next? Man, how do I answer this question? <laughs> so it's who I am, right? Yeah. Like whatever you write, right. Mm-hmm. Like, it's who you are. And, and, um, this book, I think, deals a lot with like identity and like where, uh, you know, a person comes from and how mm-hmm. how that affects where they end up. Right. Mm-hmm. And like what, the things you go through as a child or as a teenager now that affects, uh, yeah. you know, where you end up and how that not just affects it, but limits where you can go. Yeah. Right. The, the things the things you go through, not even necessarily, uh, you know, if you didn't grow up with money, but I'm talking about, let's say, you know, you took a beating every day of your life. Right. Like that means like, you know, certain people, certain partners, certain jobs are just going to be inaccessible to you because you're not going to be able to like process yeah certain conflicts you know in a healthy in a healthier way or yeah. something like that right so so you know the the book tries to uh, tackle things like that mm-hmm. in terms of like what i want to write for me this was always like the book i knew 
was the easiest to sort of um, get published because a lot of the things I want to write as well Mm -hmm. are like more, I guess, um, just like just other stuff. Maybe it's not Mm -hmm. as palatable. Like I I Mm -hmm. really want to write a lot about mortality and desire and and things, things like that, mortality and desire, you know, who knows if that stuff is like publishable, right? It's just like, that's just like, am I allowed to sound pretentious? Go ahead. Um, you know, I'm uh, for me. It's like I'm thinking about big picture stuff mm-hmm. when when it comes to like the next things I want to write or the yeah. things that I really want to write is like more big picture stuff, right? Like mortality and design yeah. and things like that. So this was always for me is like I knew there was a story here, and I knew that there was a story here that was important and that I really wanted to tell, and that I knew that people would be interested in, and so uh, that's where it came from. Yeah. So the book is called The Land of No Regrets, right? Yeah. yeah. So what are you able to provide us with a brief synopsis that we can get an understanding? Yeah, for sure. So uh, I did not come up with the title. That was like an agency publisher thing. They just, you know, I wanted to go with something that Mm -hmm. would catch. And I wasn't too particular about Mm -hmm. the title either. But basically, the book is about four uh, teenagers uh, who are growing up in a madrasa in uh, rural Ontario. So, uh, you know, they they go to public school for their childhood, and then um, Mm -hmm. they are sent away to a madrasa in the wilderness in, you know, in a community in Ontario, and they sort of come of age there and go through a lot of uh, uh, different feelings and experiences uh, while away. Some of them want to be there. Some of them do not want to be there. Mm -hmm. And uh, either way uh, it changes them and affects them. Uh, They go through, they, they, they do a lot of stuff They you know, they, they, they're all like 13, 14, 15 years old and they, buy a car they they steal stuff they sneak out of the madrasa they you know drive their teachers crazy and they grow closer as a group while at the same time tackling a lot of uh, questions around the guilt they're feeling and the things they're learning about and Mm -hmm. how to become virtuous members of a community while still uh, struggling with a lot of the things they're feeling as teenagers around their hopes and dreams for a future, right? Like one of them wants to be an artist or, you know, their thoughts about girls and things mm-hmm. like that. So, and um, it does not lead to a, a happy place. Yeah. Yeah. So how much of this was also inspired by your own, say, upbringing as well? Um, I, will I would say all of it and none of it, right? Yeah. Like the book is completely fictional. Yeah. So, so none of it, right? But at the same time, like, it's informed by things, you know, obviously I went through or my friends went through or the community members went through and things I heard mm-hmm. from other kids and things like that. So all of it is, all of it is true. And it was all mm-hmm. based on um, <laughs> the things we all went through, but no one ever talked about. Right. Like, yeah. so this book is just full of uh, experiences that really people from outside of the community will not know about, Yeah, you know, things like, you know, sneaking out, there are stuff I couldn't even put into the the book because it would sound like outrageous right like mm. yeah a lot a lot of stuff you know around like sexuality that i had to tone down yeah because uh you know it was real but like i didn't know how to to be honest i did wasn't comfortable and i didn't know how to tackle it in a in a meaningful manner yeah, yeah. in a meaningful in, in, in a good way right yeah. that, that would represent yeah that would represent my community yeah uh in, in the most honest way yeah so yeah I know Kalif had a had a question, so maybe like we'll take Kalif's question. 
Yeah, man. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Eddie. I just wanted to just ask um, just briefly about like your regimen when you write. Uh, I think sometimes the most challenging thing with a book I've heard at least is just like actually writing. So I'm just wondering how, how long that took you and what type of discipline uh, you needed in order to accomplish that. Were you writing a certain number of pages per day, like without a goal? Or do you have to submit things for deadlines? Like how did that work? Yeah. So today, currently, I have like a calendar of deadlines in terms of uh, journals and short story contests and, you know, things like that, that, you know, you know, there's, you know, three this month, a couple next month that I, you know, have to hit. And when it comes to that, that's for the submission part of it. For the writing part of it, it depends on what I'm writing. So obviously like the novel, that was like a diligent, like, you know, uh, three, four, five times a week, you know, you uh, at least, you know, a thousand words, sometimes more and sometimes less, but like a thousand was like the, for me, like the, the rough number I had in my head while I was writing the book. Now, when I'm writing short stories, I try and do them in like two or three sittings. So, you know, usually over a couple of weeks, two or three sittings. Mm. But, um, for me, like I have heard of, I know of, uh, writers who rain or shine, good or bad, whether they have an idea or not, they sit down and they write uh, a page a day, 500 words a day, five pages a day or whatever. Right? And they tell me about it. And uh, I've thought about uh, some of that stuff, but I've found that when I try and do that, it's just like garbage and nonsense on the page. Because like, if I, unless I have a concrete idea or something to work with, then, um, you know, it's just going to be, end up being garbage or nonsense. Mm-hmm. However, it's incredibly important for me to stay in practice and to stay disciplined. So even if I don't have an idea, Mm. uh, at least once a month, I try and at least, you know, just so I stay like well-oiled, right? I'll try and like write something, even if it's nonsense and garbage. I may not necessarily share it. Get your reps in. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Yeah, Yeah, I've heard heard that too. That's just, I've heard that that's the hardest part of of writing a book. I've never written a novel or anything like that. I've written like a short film before and that required some discipline, but it's just, um, a short film is also a lot more um, technically different than just writing a short story or writing a novel. So that's why I was just interested in that. I'm a, I'm a literature major as well. So I've, I've always like romanticized the idea of writing a book. So, uh, so I don't know if I'm going to do it in my lifetime, but I always thought it was really cool, especially fiction. Yeah, I will say that um, this is probably going to sound pretentious, but I don't think it's difficult and I think anybody could do it. That's dope. Yeah, I think yeah. anybody could do it. Like, yeah. honestly, like, it's not that hard. And yeah. and. Uh, yeah, but, but to go back to Eddie's question, I, I feel like I didn't give you a good enough answer. So in terms of like where this, this book came from. Yeah. So when I was 13, I was uh, sent away to Madrasa. So yeah. um, I, was, I was in public school and uh, I went to a Madrasa and uh, that entire summer, my, my, my dad sort of drove us around yeah. and uh, he was looking for a place to sort of send me. Mm. And we toured a bunch of different Madrasas. We went to one in Quebec, Ontario, mm. a couple in Ontario. And like, I never wanted to go. I didn't want to go. So Every single place we went to, I sort of found like an excuse to be like, and I, you know, wasn't really feeling it. Like I would say like, you know, it's too overcrowded mm-hmm. or this place kind of smells funny or, you know, whatever, right? Bad reputation and stuff. So my dad was just like, all right, let's go to the next place, the next place. Mm-hmm. Finally, like he got sick of it and he's like, well, you know, you got to go to one of these places because, you know, I need you to become like a scholar, right? Like I need mm-hmm. you to become a Ustad and Alim or whatever. So he sent me to a place in like Deep Scarborough. Yeah. And uh, it was just a day school. It wasn't like a boarding school the way it is in the book. So the one he sent he sent me to was a day school. Um, I lasted a week before I was like, yeah, I can't do this. Like I was, I was, I was begging my mom and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so my mom was just like, all right, so we'll just send him to the mosque after school, and then we'll let him go back to like public school. But uh, yeah, so that. But the thing is, is that like I grew up in the mosque, right? So yeah. like after school and all that stuff. So 
the, the kids I was going to the mosque with were all the kids from the boarding school yeah. and all the kids that, you know, that I was hanging out with. So like all of the stories are their stories and our stories. Right. So all this stuff was stuff that I, that happened and that I knew was happening. Yeah. You know, changing gears a bit. I think, you know, as a writer, as an artist, it yeah. can be very difficult. This yeah. is a very challenging area. Yeah. So like, and there'll be lots of people listening into this episode, right. Yeah. And wanting to ask, right. What does like say resilience, persistence and overcoming mean to you? Yeah. And what has been the most difficult part of your, of the artistic process in crafting this skill? Oh man, this is a good question. So you have, you, you have to ask yourself some very difficult questions. I, I saw something recently where a writer said that you become a writer as soon as you mm. say you are a writer. Yeah. And I strongly disagree with that. I don't, I don't believe that you are a writer when you say you are a writer. I believe you are a writer when you write. That's it, full stop. Mm-hmm. If you ever write, you're a writer. And when you write, you're a writer. And you know what I mean? Like, and if you have some sort of like, mm-hmm. whether it's once a month or once a year, right? But if that's in your body and in your soul that you know, you, you're going to write, then you're a writer. I don't think it's when you say you're a writer. So I had to ask myself this question in my 20s when I wasn't writing, mm-hmm. right? For the first half, like until I was like 27 or 28, 27, mm-hmm. 26 I, w- I, w- I was calling myself a writer and I was writing maybe like you know a few times a year yeah. and for me like for me I was uncomfortable with that yeah. and then you know at a certain age it, you know, I was like okay well what am I doing with my life right like mm-hmm. you know what and what do I want to do and I realized that like you know I still I need to I need to write like this that's what I wanted to do so yeah. uh, for me the resiliency comes in all of the, the, the institutions mm-hmm. and all of the, not just the institutions and all of the people yeah. in your life and around your life who do not make it easy for you, right? And, and um, this is going to sound crazy, right? But like the, you're going to have to fight your loved ones. Yeah. You're going to have to fight your loved ones for this thing, right? Like it, whatever it is, whatever your passion or what your dream is, if it's writing, singing, whatever, you're going to have to fight your loved ones on this, right? Like it, it, it I, I can't speak to somebody who found success at 18 years old, but I'm talking about me. I'm 32 now. And I can say that, like, you know, if you figure out that this thing is like the most important thing in your life, you're going to have to like, you know, you know, fight for it. And it's not going to be pretty and it's going to be ugly. And so for me, yeah. resiliency is in, it has to come from like an internal place where you're used to, and you're ready to hear no all the time. Right. And like, you know, you can't get published or you won't get published. And, yeah. You know, it's not about that. Right. It's yeah. about writing. You love writing. You want to share your writing with the world. So, it really has to come from a, a place of an internal internal strength. Yeah. And if you don't have it, you're going to break and you're going to become like a marketing professional. So let's say like... Sorry, so, sorry. So apologies to all the marketing professionals. Out there. No, 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 no. No, but this is really inspiring stuff. I think you're a writer when you write. So what does literary success look like to you? And what is your vision or end goal? Honestly, for me, I want to be able to uh, write full time, obviously, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know... I have enough money yeah. that I don't have to worry about working a full-time job. Yeah. And uh, so for me, like my dream life is writing, traveling, eating, reading, mm. that's it. Yeah. And uh, sometimes, you know, my wife or like, you know, other people will be like, well, that sounds like a dream life. Who wouldn't want that? Yeah. And like my response is always, so do it. Mm. Right. Like, you know what I mean? Like, the, I mean, and, and because that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Right. Like, that's what I'm trying to do. My whole thing is like, Oh, okay. How do I make that reality? Yeah. Cause like, I will not accept a life that's like beneath that yeah i live for the day that i can shut down my linkedin forever yeah. like that's you know i just i'm just like working towards that it's just like forever so for me it's like no, not I, working for you yeah exactly yeah exactly no 100 no right yeah like, 
So for me, it's like, if I can get to that place where, you know, write something that people really connect with and, you know, it it puts me in a financial position where I don't have to, you know, worry long-term about getting like some bullshit job. I don't care about, you know, I'll be, I'll be okay. So how do you balance, as in you mentioned, like working towards this goal, how do you balance both your work and personal commitments and your writing commitment? Because you're also working as well and you're writing. How do you balance everything? And also like married life as well. How does that work? Do you need also a supportive partner who's able to like, be understanding of like how hectic your schedule is going to be. What's that like? Um, so I will say that there's a clear pecking order in, mm-hmm. in my life. And like, number one is always writing mm-hmm. and that career. Um, I just sacrificed too much of my life to ever put it second. Mm-hmm. Like I, I left home when I was 22 years old under, um, so, you know, some sketchy circumstances. Yeah. And uh, I, I just sacrificed too much yeah. and uh, to ever put anything number two, right? Because like when you leave home, like you can't spend your life doing bullshit because then it's not worth leaving your home over. Yeah. Right. And uh, uh, whatever it is, right. Let's say you had a big fight with your parents. If you have a big giant ass fight with your parents and they don't speak to you for like, you know, however many years and you're just on the streets, like just doing like random stuff, then like, that's kind of whack. Right. Yeah. So for me, it's like, it was incredibly important. Okay. You know, you left home under, under some bad circumstances, like you better do something mm-hmm. important. Right. And, and uh, you know, you said you, you know, you, you you were gonna write and you want to be a writer okay so mm-hmm. let me see it right so for me there's a clear pecking order and like writing is number one and uh, for me it has to be that way because i've never felt like i've never felt like anybody have my back in this thing so mm-hmm. for me it's like if i'm not gonna put myself number one i don't think anybody is yeah so you know i gotta make this thing number one so yeah. um and uh i know that's like a that's some like some dark stuff but um it's passion yeah exactly it's i mean passion. no one, yeah exactly right and uh and I know that it's not the case for like all writers, like a lot of writers like have like a really like loving and supportive like community around them. And, mm. um, you know, people, you know, who really like buy their stuff or, you know, attend all their stuff or stuff like that. So like for me, like I've never needed like a partner to, or friends really who, who, who would do that sort of thing. Yeah. I've always found that like, it, it, it requires like a specific type of internal strength. And I'm going to break it down for you. Cause I've, I've thought about this a lot, right. When you're starting out, you're going to write stuff, you're going to publish it and people are going to criticize it. And it's not going to bother you that much because you're going to be like, well, I don't know that guy, mm-hmm. whatever the critic is, right? If it's a critic who, who read your book and read your work and is talking shit about you, you can be like, I don't, I don't know that guy. So his words really, you know, really don't mean much. And then you're going to find a little bit more success and you're going to write something, you're going to publish it. And uh, it's still not going to bother you, but it's going to bother you a little bit because you're going to be like, well, now I have like a, a bit of a name and recognition and stuff like that. Right. And, and this guy's still, you know, talking shit about me, but you know, maybe he's just, maybe he's just mad, you know, maybe he's just, you know, full of himself or something. And so it's not going to bother you that much. Right. And then there's going to come a point, right. Where the people criticizing you are going to be the people who are supposed to have your back, right. Like this is going to happen. And then that's when it's going to really bother you. And that's when you're going to need that internal strength to like recognize like, no, this is who I am. I'm a writer and I'm going to keep writing regardless of what other people say. You know, when people start saying like, you know, I think it's time you start writing on the side, you know, you should start looking at getting a full-time job Mm. and, you know, doing some other stuff. If you can say no to those people, you're good. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a really amazing stuff. Not only is it motivation, but it's inspiring. I also enjoy writing. And I think I know a lot of people have, and I think sometimes you need to hear this. The question in some of our audience's mind is like, what was it like going with this kind of motivation? What was it like going through the publication process? How did you negotiate your deal with HarperCollins? And 
um, how has that experience changed your process, right? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, 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 no, for sure. Um, so that's what I mean, right? Like where like, if you don't have that internal strength, you probably would have been broken like, yeah. or like you would have given up or you would have mm-hmm. went to like a smaller publisher and you would have had a thousand copies of your book published. You would have made a little bit of bread and then, mm-hmm. you know, that's it, right? And like, and you would have said, you know what? I did it. Mm-hmm. I got published. I can go back to my thing or you just keep running on the side with, yeah. with a small thing. But for me, like um, I was never going to take no for an answer. Mm-hmm. So uh, for me, I heard a story. I used to work with this guy and uh, he said that he lived, he lived, uh, for one year in France yeah. and he wrote a book while yeah. he was there. And when he came back, he sent it out and he uh, s- submitted it to like every publisher in Canada and America. Yeah. And like, o- and obviously they were like not interested. And uh, so like he moved on. And for me, it just raised more questions instead. I didn't understand why he moved on for me. It just raised more questions, but like, I just kept that to myself and I just moved on. But for me, I was like, you know, well, how come you didn't uh, keep trying or how come you didn't write, like write something else and, you know, keep at it or whatever. Mm-hmm. And today I don't think the guy even writes anymore. Yeah. So for me, like when I was starting out, I had to learn, I had to start from scratch. I didn't have a community. Right. So I, for me, it was all Google searches. Like, you know, how, you know, how does someone get published? What do you yeah. got to do? Right. You know, uh, I wrote something, I submitted it. It got rejected everywhere. I sent it out to agencies. It got rejected everywhere. And then I started working on short stories. Well, you know, I started writing short stories and I started submitting them. You know, mm-hmm. they started getting accepted a couple of places I started submitting those to some agencies and the agency said, well, if you ever write a book, we'd be interested, but right now, no. So that, so it led me to me writing the book. So I wrote this book and I submitted it to a, a bunch of agencies. And um, one of the agencies said, uh, we're not going to take you, but if you edit this, we'll consider taking you. Yeah. And uh, here's the other thing. I don't want you to talk to any other agency if you're going to edit this yeah. because we're, we'll give you like uh, someone to help edit it with you. Yeah. So they'll help you out. Um, but I don't want you to talk to any other agency. Uh, and, uh, I'm also not guaranteeing you that I'm going to take it after the edits. Yeah. So at that point I had a decision that I could uh, honor their, uh, their offer. their offer and not speak to any other agency and continue to work with them. Mm-hmm. Not on the promise that they would take me on the promise that like they consider me, yeah. right. Yeah. I knew that they were rats and snakes. Right. Yeah. So, uh, I said, uh, okay, yeah, sure. Whole time I was sending out submissions on the side. Yeah. The whole time. And then uh, uh, before, and then they, ha- they had the audacity. And so I worked with their editor. I got yeah. it edited. Of course, they rejected me. Yeah. Had I not been sending all that shit out on the side, I would have lost like six months of my time and we wouldn't ha- be having like mm. this conversation here with you. Yeah. Because uh, one of the agencies that I was submitting to at that time was the one that eventually took me on for representation. Yeah. Um, had I not been doing that and had I honored uh, our agreement, I wouldn't be here. I just straight up wouldn't be here. Yeah. You know, so it took like a year and a half of understanding what this industry was yeah. and how they treat people and, and people just starting out on writers that uh, for me to understand, okay, you know, you got to play just as nasty as them. You have to do way through it. Yeah. hundred percent. And yeah. it's never over. And it's my least favorite aspect of it. Right. Like obviously as any writer knows, like yeah. you just want to like write and read and yeah. tell stories. Right. And like, you don't want to waste your time with this shit, right. Like yeah. submitting and, uh, you know, reading between lines and things like that. So, yeah. but um, like either you have a community and you can be all soft and sweet. Mm-hmm. They will support you and get you there. Yeah. Or uh, it's going to take a certain kind of nastiness uh, to get what you want. Yeah. Drive. Yeah. 
So like, I'll open it up to. <laughs> Eddie says drive. I say nastiness. <laughs> I like to keep it like optimistic, but I'll open it up to the rest of the brothers because um, I think many of would have a lot of questions or like input as well. So I'll open it up uh, before our final our final statements as well. So Caliph Hassan Bader, uh, Harsh, feel free. Yeah, man. I, I, again, just like, yeah, shout out to you, man. It seems like you're like a very tenacious person. I obviously haven't met you in person, but I'm saying just from the, uh, the, the story that you told us now is just uh, really incredible stuff. My question was just for that last situation where, you know, I, I made the comment that they kind of tried to sugar night you, which is kind of like put you in, I don't, I don't know if you listen to music at all or you know yes, what yeah. is, but yeah, like they, he basically put people in like these impossible deals in the nineties and death row. Right. And it's like, yeah. People were so eager to get on that, you know, what they do, whatever it took. Right. And, and, and some of that is like, you know, owning your rights for the next three albums or whatever. Right. And it's like, um, you see that happen in music very often. Like I'm a big music person happens to a lot of producers, people who till this day are in a deal like hit boy. If you know who hit boy is, who works a lot with Nas. And it's like in that situation, when you, when you notice that they said, you know what? Um, and, and, and like you said, you agree to the potential, right? Like there's a potential to be rejected. Yeah. Uh, you can edit, uh, or, or we can, we can have like exclusive rights to kind of like your material. If we edit, were you yeah. ever afraid of like any legal action that they might take? Did you sign anything? Like, I'm just wondering where like that fearlessness came from. If you could talk to, uh, speak to that a little bit more. Yeah, no, for sure. That's a, that's a really good question. So at the end of the situation, like, I think I, I left a bad taste in her mouth. Cause mm-hmm. she's like, well, you know, like we we helped you edit this like i thought we would have exclusive rights to it and i'm like and i didn't say this to her right but like she obviously left a bad bad taste in my mouth yeah because like i knew you guys were going to do this yeah. and you guys did not promise me anything, right? like i knew you guys were going to reject me yeah. in the end of it right but um but but basically i knew i knew the tactics they were using right and it, it is it does have parallels and it is similar to things that happen obviously in the entertainment industry there are so many there are so many things and situations that i had to say no to or i had to say yes to just based on like potential or, you know, they say exposure or publication or, you know, things like that. And so many things that you have to like, like be able to be able to see through. There was a gut feeling here because like, for me, like I knew that like, if you loved me, if you loved my writing, you would have accepted it like then and there, you wouldn't like be jerking me around like this. Like Mm -hmm. this is an agency and a woman who was humming and hawing and uh, you know, uh, sorry, going back and forth about edits and, you know, you know, we, we have, we, we have this and stuff like that, you know, we'll consider it. And mm. it was taking a long time as well to like read my work. Right. Yeah. And like generally like, you know, Hey, they're busy. Yeah. They're yeah. reading tons of stuff. So, yeah. but they were taking a significant amount of time to like get through stuff. Then they'd send me, they'd send me updates through email being like, Oh, we loved it. I don't know. Sorry. You know, there's like a, they had like a heat wave or something there and she was on the like the west coast and they're like oh we have a heat wave so i didn't get through that much of it but i'm loving it and then like a few weeks later they sent another update and like it's like for me i'm like um uh, that sounds like bullshit to me if like mm-hmm. if you if you loved it you just read it and that's it like yeah. i don't need it i don't i wasn't asking for an update every week or every yeah. two weeks right and like wh- i don't care how long it's taking you right and the agency that i eventually mm-hmm. signed with they took forever to get through it, but they didn't send me any emails. They were just like, okay, I was busy the whole time. And like, I read it. Yeah, and I loved it's, it. It, it seems like this person wants to create some sort of fake value for you. Yeah. And it's like, because they know that what they're doing is disingenuous. So yeah, mm. no, exactly. Right. It takes a special kind of like capacity for misery. Like I had to take my fair share of um, losses, you know, mm. I'm holding a bunch of L's right now. Yeah. Like early in the process, when I wrote, a sh- when I wrote um, a short story collection, sent it to a bunch of agencies. One of the agencies said, uh, uh, I have an editor friend 
you uh, if you work with them, I'll consider your uh, collection. Yeah, I'll consider your collection. I think I've told you this. And, yeah. and, and you know, I'll uh, I'll consider your collection, and uh, you know, we might represent it. And then, yeah, I'm gonna leave names out for this. But yeah. basically, their friend uh, uh, charged me like fifteen hundred dollars, and I did not have that kind of money at the time. But you know, I you know put it together. I had to do it. I had to do it. to uh, edit my work. And then uh, I go back to the agency, and the agency says, you know what, still not there yet. We got to pass. I'm sorry. They made their friend, you know, a little bit richer yeah. thanks to me. And I know that these people are dirty, bro. Like if this, if they ever hear this conversation, they're going to defend this shit. They're going to defend this shit. And they're going to be like, well, no, this was all honest. We weren't trying to make our friend richer. We were actually considering your shit. They were considering Jack shit. You know, it's, it's, it reminds me, you know, in the mid two thousands, I know some of you guys are basketball fans, right? In the mid two thousands, it's like that GM who was in charge of the Raptors. Babcock. Babcock. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Babcock. Absolutely. If you speak to him today, he still defends the Vince Carter trade. Like, oh, no, it was a good trade. Yeah. Like, you know, what I mean? like whatever the situation was, right? We had to get rid of him, whatever. But, like, at least say that we got shit in return. Eric and Aaron Carter. I still remember the names because that's how bullshit that trade was. But it's the same shit. Like, though, this is the same people in this situation who would defend what they did right yeah. like they just made their friend richer and maybe maybe she was really considering it right if she, they work with her friend right but like for me it's like it's just it's it's not right you know they come they came back to me and they said well you know we already have a, a south asian writer and uh uh who's writing about you know some s- similar stuff so uh you know i can't really take this on right now but you know so i don't think they would have said that about a white writer. They never say a white to a white writer. Oh, we already have like a white another writer, white person. Yeah. You know? yeah. There's enough. On there right exactly. Yeah, like we don't need more. Exactly. Right. So as soon as he, they have a quota for, for me, right. Or they have a quota for us. Right. So yeah, that, yeah, that was like a huge knock that I had to take. And that's what made me like fearless when I, when, when, uh, you know, the next agency was like, okay, you know, we want exclusive rights to like edit this thing yeah. and we may not pass it. And that's when I was like, well, I, no, I have been through this, you know, yeah. like I, I know exactly what they're going to do. So you have to be tenacious about something, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a disgusting, lazy person when it comes to almost everything else in my life. Right. Like, um, but when it comes to this thing, like this is the thing that I'm going to be tenacious about. Yeah. This is the one area where like uh, mm-hmm. people are not going to catch me, yeah. you know, slacking or whatever. Right. Like mm-hmm. you got to be tenacious about something, right? Like you're going to be, yeah. you're going to be, whether it's your kids or your or relationship, whatever it is, right. You got to be, you're gonna be tenacious about something. If you're if you're just um if you're just like lazy and like like about everything, then you're like a waste of uh everything your ancestors did to like get you there. At the, at the same time, like you gotta enjoy it, right? Yeah. Because like they, you know. But but yeah, that's all I'm gonna say about that. Yeah. So now, brothers, we're coming to the end of our episode today. I want to thank you all. Thank you for your time and thank you for your perspectives, especially you, Sadie. For our listeners, thank you for tuning in today's episode. Um, as always, we hope you found this insightful. We hope it made you think. We look forward to having you join us uh, for our next episode. Feel free to also follow Sadi on Twitter at Sadi underscore Mukhtadar. Uh, and for those interested, Sadi's book, The Land of No Regrets, comes out next spring 2023. So please keep an eye out. Thank you uh, to everyone for having me and... Uh... Looking forward to uh, seeing uh, what you write as well, Eddie. So.